Listeners, and welcome aboard Costume Station Zero. I'm Bob Mitch, and today I am with Johanna Mead. Welcome. Hello. Uh, Johanna, for those who don't know, uh, was the uh, founder and uh, main moderator on DWCosplay.com, where I am sort of the, what, the lower tier co-moderator on right now? Faithful minion. Yes, I'm a faithful minion of costuming, and uh, we're just going to, you know, geek out and talk about costumes and Doctor Who. So, I like to jump to the beginning and ask what got you into costuming in the first place? I think it kind of depends on where you define where I got into it. Uh, always had a bit of a tendency to show off. And uh, the very first costume I remember looking at and saying, I want that, was, uh, God help me, it was, I think it was Adam of the Ants and Kings of the World Frontier. Uh, a friend of mine was having a fancy dress birthday party, and I decided I, I wanted to dress up as Adam Ant for that. So nice. with, a lot of, yes, with a lot of assistance from my mother, uh, a sort of, you know, very, very sad little Hussar-esque vest was made and, and silly makeup and all that sort of thing. But really, uh, I guess the, the starting point properly as a, as a so-called grown-up was um, I had joined, like many people, um, a Star Trek fan club back in, my goodness, it must have been 92 or so, uh, up here in the Bay Area. And, of course, members of Star Trek fan clubs go to conventions, do a lot of community events, and do them in costume. And so I, I felt the need to have a costume to go along with them. And uh, the very first costume I actually paid somebody else to make, I couldn't sew at that point. But the first one I made uh, was a, gosh, it was a Bajoran jumpsuit from DS9. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I'll date um, you a bit. Yeah, yeah, I'm the only one I'm dating me right now. So it was um it was actually a terrible, terrible costume in that I had taken something that needed to be made out of a two way stretch knit, you know, all those jumpsuits were. But all I had uh for my stash and my fabric hunting was a uh, very restricted one way stretch fabric kind of. Mm -hmm. So it was um I now understand why my mother, who very patiently helped me by not saying a word, uh just stood there and, and rolled her eyes eloquently as she saw me struggling uh to make it work. Mm -hmm. I, I think I ended up wearing it twice before something came apart at the seams. Fortunately not, you know, in public or anything. Um but that was the very first costume that that kind of, you know, I went, I want this and I made it myself. Mm -hmm with no help from grown-ups. Um, and then there were subsequent little pieces uh, still done within the, St the Star Trek fan club uh, for the next couple of years. And then um, I moved into uh, live-action role-playing. I'm a big role-playing geek. And so uh, playing in, in these live-action events, of course, costuming was a really key part to uh, um, introducing a character. And uh, I, I grew increasingly dissatisfied with what I saw on the shelves. And, well, wait a minute, I can start making my own. And it all just snowballed from there. That's where it all starts. Oh, yeah. 
So what do you consider your very first costume then? And whether, I mean, some people only consider their first costume like whatever they did when they were five for Halloween, and other people consider what they consider their first, I dove in there and went crazy costume they wore at a convention. What, what about you? Um, I think that would actually be the Bajoran jumpsuit, despite mm-hmm. a very short life, life, lifespan, because yeah, I wore that at a convention. It was kind of my coming out as a big old geek mm-hmm. uh, outfit, I guess you could say. Um, I, I do remember my, my father looking simultaneously rather appalled and secretly quite proud uh, as I was putting my duds on to head off to the local one-day event that we were doing. Because uh, in, in my, my father is a science fiction geek as well, mm-hmm. um, who sees absolutely no connection uh, with, with him, you know, having me watch Doctor Who with him when I was a little kid and listening to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. No connection between that and how I turned out. He's baffled. <laughs> absolutely baffled. So... Um, no, I, I call that Bajoran costume was, was the first thing I tried. Um, and then I think the first thing that I really dove into, though, and, and actually, you know, educated myself along the way rather than making it up, uh, was uh, for Halloween, I did one of the um, DC uh, heroine costumes, uh, the Huntress, mm-hmm. and to go with a friend who was doing Batman, you know. And so that was, was built from scratch onto a, you know, a, you know, a bodysuit and all those elements. Strangely enough, it was the boots that gave me the most aggravation, though. These, these comic book artists have no consideration for cosplayers when they're designing these costumes, I tell you. Well, I don't think costume designers or comic book artists together are thinking about cosplayers when they're inventing these things. <laughs> Darn them. Darn, Darn them. them. Darn them all to heck. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, so it sounds like um, your, your first real fandom or cosplay fandom was Star Trek? Yeah, yeah. Um, Despite being a lifelong fan of Doctor Who, I, I didn't actually get into Doctor Who cosplay until ooh, about seven or eight years ago, just just before the new show uh, kicked in, mm-hmm. and and that was because a um, friend of mine, Kevin Roach, another awesome customer. Oh yes, I need to uh, talk to him actually. Oh, you should, you should. Um, he convinced me to come down to Gallifrey One. Well, to give it another chance. I'd been once before during the wilderness years, and I was a little, I was a little underwhelmed by it. But that's because I wasn't. Uh, I've been out of touch with the fandom. But no, and and uh, he says, "Oh no, you've got to come to Gallifrey One. The costume, you know, this costuming will be really awesome." And I was like, "There's Doctor Who costuming, really? I mean, aside from just walking around wearing a home knit scarf and a big fluffy hat." Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah," and he starts showing me pictures, and and that definitely sort of piqued my interest because at that point, I. I had been doing more costuming, the, the sort of Halloween and role-playing costume stuff. So now I feel like, oh, okay, I've actually got the skills to perhaps start tackling, you know, some, some Doctor Who costuming eventually. Um, although I think my first Doctor Who costume, the very first, it must have been the Femi Tenth Doctor, the first version of that, mm-hmm. I think about it, which was a case of I really loved David Tennant's the pinstripe suit, the, the blue on brown pinstripe, right. and I adored it, but I am not six foot tall and skinny. No. I, I, as, as I put it, don't be so quick to agree there, as I put it, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hobbit, not an elf. <laughs> um, so I was like, I, I really like the aesthetic on this costume, but what can I do to... Um, to, to not be a complete laughing stock, uh, I, I can't make the suit. That's not going to work on me. So I came up with a little joke about a horrific accident in the TARDIS. You know, reversing the polarity of the neutron flow one too many times. You don't want to see what happened to Rose. She won't come out. And you know, put together this pinstripe corset and mini skirt and a little crop, mm-hmm. Lero jacket version. That was the uh, the first version of, of the Femi Ten. And uh, I was kind of an early adopter, I think, of the whole Femi Ten or Femi Doctor Who look. Um, so there were definitely some 
okay, I think I see what you're trying to do, but I don't think I get it, responses at first. But um, the, the idea spread through the community sort of simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Very, in a very short space of time, I went from being, as far as I could tell, one of the only people doing kind of a, a gender play with, with the doctor's costume to, oh my goodness, there's bunches of us. I think it's just um, the time was right. Uh, you know, it was, it, uh, and I think a lot of female cosplayers wanted to take ownership of, of the doctor in, in a way without having to resort to crossplay. But that's a whole other. Yeah, I, I actually do think uh, crossplay deserves its own podcast. I'd like to roundtable that, I think, with uh, you, know, you and Nicole and maybe Miriam or, or some other people. Absolutely. I think that'd be mm-hmm. great. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of where it started, I guess, with Doctor Who was, was the 10th Doctor. That's right. But you were probably the first femme Doctor I'd seen. And I know from older photos of, uh, of other cosplay I'd seen in Doctor Who, I don't think I'd seen really any other femme doctors i think i'd seen one or two girls doing straight cross play maybe but that was about it um but then again you know it's not like i've seen everything and uh, there were gaps and uh, there were cons i didn't go to so uh, but that's that's cool and it sounds like it wasn't even really uh, done as a as an executive decision of i am going to take ownership of the doctor and make him a, a woman you just sort of did it as a just a quick well uh, what can i do that suits me and you know as you said it's almost it was almost a joke at first well, it was a, yeah, it was a joke. Um, you know, it was. Um, plus, I just also really like making corsets. I have to admit. So, and the challenge of doing a corset with pinstripes on it uh, was uh, too much to resist. Quite often, many of my costuming decisions have been born of that would be really challenging to make. How would I do that? And I want to learn how to do that, so I'm going to set out to make this costume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which means I tend to get really crazy frustrated about halfway through. Right. He's <laughs> learning a new to me technique uh, while I'm while I'm tackling it. So um, it sounds like you do make a lot of your costumes. Are you self-taught? Did you take any classes? No, I'm self-taught. I'm really lucky. Uh, I'm a third generation seamstress in my family. And so uh, I grew up with my mother sewing, although she, she was primarily a quilter later on, but she made a lot of her own clothes when she was younger. So I've got these memories uh, of seeing the process happen. And fortunately or unfortunately, uh, sewing isn't really taught, you know, even home ec, you know, at school anymore. So the instructions and those store-bought patterns get more and more specific. <laughs> so even I think, you know, a relative beginner can, can find their way through directions. Um, and I think I was kind of lucky in, in the, the progression I made. Um, I, I didn't wade straight into doing something really difficult in terms of materials, despite saying I used a one-way stretch fabric. But um, I mean, later on, one of my most challenging costumes was I did a Von Penn from Girl Genius, Fulfolio's Girl Genius. And that was a costume that involved metallic spandex and using Wonderflex and vinyl and resin casting to make certain aspects of it um, and some metal work because uh, she's sort of, the costume's all kind of chained to itself in an interesting way. And um, thank God I didn't think to try doing that you know, as my first costume project, I would have gotten frustrated and stopped right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, so sometimes uh, I have definitely, of course, always turned to the internet to, to learn things and to fellow customers. I've got a couple of friends, I'm sure, who are really tired of me calling them going, how did you do this? <laughs> Help me out with this. Um, but uh, as, as has been observed already, we customers love helping each other out. So... Mm-hmm. I've never, no, I've never taken any formal classes in, in doing what I do. 
And have you, I mean, before getting back to Doctor Who, what, what other characters have you tackled? Um, I did, uh, I did make it for me, obviously, but I made it for my husband, a, a Battlestar Galactica, the new Battlestar Galactica officer's uniform, um, which was really great fun. Um, and also an exercise in, in slow insanity in learning <laughs> how to, um, well, all the piping, there, there's some very fiddly bits in the piping that you don't notice until you're looking at some close-ups of screen caps um, and learning how to put that piping in correctly uh, was, uh, there, there was a lot of unpicking and redoing uh, on that one. But I was really happy with how it turned out. And then I also did some sort of um, fantasy historical costuming like Renaissance Fair and Seventh Sea role-playing. Mm -hmm. uh, um, again, for myself and, and for my husband. Uh, and uh, you know, but really, once once I've waded into Doctor Who, that that's <laughs> taking up most of my time. I must admit. Sure, sure. So so run, run me down all the Doctor Who characters you've done because I, I could name them, but I'm sure I'll forget some. You say all of them, but actually, it's, it's a surprisingly short list because I'm the world's slowest seamstress. Mm -hmm. Um, there, I did, uh, well, my pride and joy is Romana won, uh, her androids of Tara rig, yes. the, the great big purple thing, which, um, was very much learning experience in making your own piping and again, uh, applying it correctly and making sure everything is, is level, particularly when you discover that you hold one of your shoulders a half inch higher than the other. Mm -hmm. Um, that very much affected the look of the coat. Um, then, uh, I did a second version of the Femi 10th Doctor because I decided I do not have the legs for a miniskirt and I uh, rebuilt it with a longer skirt in a, in a sort of a cotton velveteen. I found blue pinstripe brown cotton velveteen mm -hmm. at a discount fabric store so I became a moral imperative to use that in something. And uh, a couple of sort of original characters that were sort of strange little mishmashes. Um, I did my own time agent. I wanted to create an original concept for a time agent. Um, she was stuck in uh, 1982 for four years. So the costume was really sort of an homage to 1982 pop star faux militaria because I noticed that, you know, what little canon we had for time agent costumes, uh, both with, with Smith and, uh, sorry, with John Hart, pardon me, and Jack Harkness was this, you know, little military aspect. And I kind of wanted to take the mickey out of that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, where, where, where was that A really silly trend? Oh, yes, of course, the 1980s. Uh, you know, Michael Jackson, I think Duran Duran went through a phase of it, mm -hmm. you know, so, so stuck some braid on, put some epaulets, um, uh, used a lot of red and black. And, uh, um, and of course, that was one of those costumes that I had to keep explaining to people what it was, but there you go. Uh, now, this, you say stuck yeah. in 1982 for four years, meaning literally stuck in that same year for four years, or you mean... Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It, it, it drove the character a little crazy, which is why she had no taste. Uh, uh, and may, maybe subconsciously connecting back to the Adam Adamant thing, right? Look, you know, um, now that you mentioned that, I'm, I'm horrified to think you're probably right, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but it wouldn't be uh, the least of my sins, I think, really. Uh, and then I did another original concept, which was inspired by um, Lucy Saxon's sort of story, or lack thereof in some respects, uh, and, and the end of her cycle, with that whole wonderful homage to Flash Gordon, female hand picking up the, the mm. signal, before that got resolved in, in, in uh, the 
following Christmas special. And so I, I joined in with a, a fan's, you know, happy fan theory that, of course, by the time Lucy shot the master, the brain swap had already happened. Ah. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, so now I've got the master walking around um, in, in Lucy's body, so to speak. How would the master dress if, uh, if he was female? And then the costumes sort of, as I was designing it, uh, became an homage to every actor who's played the master. Mm. So it became a case of, oh, the color scheme, you know, is because you yeah, had lots of black, you know, the first two masters. And I had these this red satin undertone because at one point John Sim has a coat that's a black wool coat lined in red satin mm. that goes beautifully in one shot. And I wanted that. And I had this ridiculous collar on my shirt because of the Eric Roberts, um, you know, incredibly camp yeah. Uh, Rick in the TV movie. Dressing for the occasion. Oh, yes, which, you know, he found that outfit in the TARDIS. So it belonged to the Doctor at some point, apparently. <laughs> um, but let's not go there. No. And, uh, and you know, and I had, a, yeah, I had, she was wearing black leather gloves because, you know, we had several iterations of the Master wearing gloves. And, uh, and by the time it was done, it once again had become a costume that required a 10 minute explanation when people said, what the heck are you? Uh, but I loved it dearly because it was kind of my paying homage to a character I really like in, in a costume form. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoyed doing that. Um, I've been working for three years on finishing my Mercy Hardigan dress. But ah. yes, real life vicissitudes uh, completely halted that one halfway through being put together, uh, which is a shame. And as soon as I lose 30 pounds, I'll get right back to it. Understood. Yes, yes. Um, with that one, there's a slight secondary challenge because I wanted to make it um, historically accurate for, for the period because I participate sometimes in a local event called the Dickens Fair, which is, um, as the name suggests, it's a, it's a Christmas time event set in Dickensian in London. And people, just like the Renaissance Fair, dress up in Victorian gear. And so I thought, well, you know what? If I make this Mercy Hardigan dress with uh, proper Victorian underpinnings and with Victorian patterns, then I can use it at this event as well. And, and given the cost in fabric and materials, I really wanted something I was going to wear more than once a year uh, at a convention. Mm-hmm. And when it's done. It'll look smashing, I promise. It's just one of those, uh, one of those. Unfortunately, you can't always finish every costume you start, and that one suffered particularly uh, from some life vicissitudes. So my actual list of of Doctor Who specific costumes is really uh, quite short. <laughs> um, I keep threatening to put together a Femi Eight rig. Nice. Uh, yes, yes, but I'm also starting to think I'm a little bit past um, the Femi Doctor thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've done it twice, so to speak. I'll be it both times with the Tenth Doctor. Been there, done um, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, not not to denigrate anyone who's doing it right now, because my God, I've seen some really wonderful, wonderful twists on the idea. Very, very interesting interpretations, definitely. Really creative and really, really fun. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't you also do a, a unit soldier and a Ronnie? Oh my gosh! You see, this is what happens when we do the podcast late at night. I forget these things. Um, yeah, yeah, I did do the Ronnie just just this past year, um, and that was uh, an excuse to learn how to how to paint fabric because I had gone. I was doing the red, the burgundy tunic from time and- in the Ronnie. Yes, time in the Rani. And I had gone berserk. I was looking for about two months for a fabric that was even a, a close enough match. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find anything. Uh, and I was looking around Christmas, too, when red and gold are very popular Christmas oh, yeah. colors. So I didn't find anything. And in the end, I settled for, I bought some incredibly cheap uh, cotton chintz and a stencil 
you know, a wall stencil for home decor and stenciled the fabric, mm-hmm. uh, the cut fabric with this um, wonderful um, Lumiere fabric paint. It's a great line to these really gorgeous metallic colors. And I found this nice sort of, um, I think they called it old bronze or old brass and stenciled that fabric and assembled the costume from that. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't real happy with it in the end. Um, I had fluffed the fit. Uh, a little bit and it's the way that costume is cut being so 80s with the big shoulders mm-hmm. um, it's it's not very not real flattering and like I said I'm, I'm a hobbit not an elf uh, <laughs> when I put it on I, I was actually kind of like hmm I, 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 I'd also miscut it so it was already too large uh, in the chest and that's not, not an area where I need extra fabric uh. so I that's actually um, currently been taken apart again and is in my closet waiting to be recut uh, since then I've uh, had a custom bodice block made for me and I've been learning how to manipulate that to create uh, custom fit clothing from scratch rather than altering uh, store-bought patterns which is where I was before. Um, it's, it's gotten to the point where uh, I, I just can't do that anymore and I'm hoping that with luck next Gallifrey we will see uh, the Rani 2.0 and <laughs> won't fit me potato sack. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed for that one. And the the unit soldier was, gosh, oh, I almost forgotten about her. She was, you know, there was an event, it was some convention here in the Bay Area, and I, and I forget why, but but the idea came up about doing sort of vintage military costumes, and I and I thought about classic era, the, 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 the very first appearances of the unit, it was like, what, 1971, 72, when was, when was Robot? And, well, Robot, no, Robot was 74, 75, but I think you're thinking of 70 with Percy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you right, you're right. And they technically premiered really in the invasion with Brigadier. Yeah, and and so I, I got to thinking, you know, I was like, well, let's let's do an, you know a throwback unit costume because some folks are doing the contemporary unit, the new series unit, and the black BDUs. Uh, I look terrible in baggy black clothes, so um, I again I happen to have, I just happen to own in my closet a nineteen, I think it was early nineteen sixties Ike jacket, you know, green wool mm-hmm. hour jacket. And so well, I've got this, so let's build the costume around that and just hunted down some vintage you know, army trousers that were the same shade, khaki shirt, got me a garrison cap, got me some of that, um, they call it fabric, that you can run through an inkjet printer uh, you know, with, and put the unit logos on there and made a patch for the hat and a patch for the sleeve of the jacket. And that's all it was needed. But it was great because it was very simple to put together. You know, no sewing on my part, just, mm-hmm. just assembly items. Uh, the most complicated part was scaling up the patches into mm-hmm. the right size and discovering that the directions on that stuff stink. Uh, they, they, they have you turn up the iron far too hot. And since the stuff is essentially a plastic, mm-hmm. it will melt and stick to your iron. Yeah, yeah, learn mm. from my mistake there, kids. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, actually, I'm, I'm looking at the hat right now. It's sitting on my bookshelf, so I can't believe I forgot to mention it. <sighs> tisk tisk. Now, uh, I do think the coolest thing about it is that that was one of the first Who costumes I think I ever saw you in short of the Femme 10. And uh, what I really liked is that you were rocking not just unit and classic unit, you were rocking like the season seven look for unit, which you don't see nearly as much as like what I consider the later season eight through like, you know, 12 uh, unit. Uh, pure coincidence, I assure you. Uh, as I said, it was, it was built around the jacket, which um, I remember actually, I, I did actually date it. It was, uh, it was issued 1953. I think that jacket was issued. 
Um, and so I just sourced the trousers to match from the same period. They were like Korean War surplus, I think. That the mm -hmm. trousers, but it was it was sheer coincidence if it resembled one particular season over another. Uh, I was just going for you know it's it's old military. You can tell I'm unit from the patches. Nice. Well, still appreciate it all the same because uh, more classic who gets uh, gets love is always good in my book. I'm all for representing the old school. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, a little a little sidestep into the world of who your uh, who is your first doctor, or who do you consider your doctor? Well, the one I consider my doctor actually wasn't really the first. Uh, my doctor uh, emotionally for me would be Peter Davidson, the fifth doctor. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the very first time I watched Doctor Who, I have some very sketchy memories of watching. It must have been I, I looked at the TV schedules. It must have been a rerun of some John Pertwee story. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was very, very small. And I really remember it because my mother was watching it because she, she was very sweet on John Pertwee. And <laughs> I remember her explaining to me what was going on. He was, he was some scene in which he was driving Bessie. And I remember the bright yellow car, you know. That really narrows it down. Yeah. But, um, and, and, things, and, and, I, and as I recall, that episode originally aired before I was born. So it must have been a repeat. Um, but really, um, I started sort of remembering it and paying attention with, with Tom Baker, of course. Right. Um, and I remember very early Tom Baker stories with, with Sarah Jane Smith and Harry. And I think the earliest story that made a lasting impression, um, unsurprisingly perhaps, was definitely was, was Genesis of the Daleks. Mm, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know. Um, I wasn't hiding behind the sofa, but it was a near thing. <laughs> you, you, you were eyeing the back of the sofa longingly. <laughs> yes, I was, I was actually much more frightened, of course, by Davros, I, I think, than the Daleks themselves. But that that story uh, really made a lasting impression. And mm -hmm. but as I said, but as a you know, I, I well you know I I was gosh I forget when Pete Davidson started. I must have been about ten, and I, I think there may have been just a tiny little element of city school girl crush involved mm -hmm. uh, on that one on the wet vet from outer space, as the British papers called him. Mm -hmm. I, I guess when people say what's your first, I say really it, it, it's Tom. You know, it was definitely Tom Baker. Your first was Tom, but your doctor is Davison. That's cool. Yeah, although sometimes, you know, he's thumb wrestling with Palm again, you know, with the Eighth Doctor, but oh. yeah, it's a tough pick. But that's that's all because Big Finish saved the Eighth Doctor for me, but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, no, very true. Yeah, Big Finish did a lot, I'd say, for both the uh, Eight and Six, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, but that's cool. Yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, of course, it's Tom all the way. He was my first, and he was my doctor. But if you had asked me uh, in the early to mid '90s, I would have said McCoy. Uh, again, I think Big Finish saved McCoy for me because. When I finally got to seeing the Sylvester McCoy stories, I was living in America, and so I think about a year or a year and a half behind showing on PBS, and I was, I don't know, 14, 15. So I was, I was at the right age to want to outgrow, you know, these silly childhood fancies of mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember watching Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was like, I really don't like this. This, this is kind of awful, uh, which is a shame, actually. Um, yes, you know, it is. Yes, I went, went back and rewatched them, you know, quite recently, actually. Went, these, these are great. But it, it took Big Finish, again, listening to the Big Finish stories and the characterization and going, okay, I, I clearly gave uh, Sylvester McCoy the short shrift because I was a teenager and, and, you know, thinking I was far too mature for this silly kids show. Mm -hmm. Silly me. I went back. <laughs> well, you could be forgiven if you had stumbled on a season 24 story. There's uh, very little redeeming going on there. Oh, uh, you know, yeah, I have to agree with you on that one, actually. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I like McCoy, and I and I do enjoy seasons twenty five and twenty six, but twenty four was a bit, uh, yeah, shaky. Um, but that that's cool. So I, I'm just reestablishing, you know, old school fan. You know, I, I know that I came in a little later, but PBS was always still showing Tom Baker in the '80s, so I still started from roughly the same point. And uh, it, it seems to me that you know people of a certain age have a have a affinity for that for that era. And, uh, and that's all because that's where we came in. And then there's the people who came in either during the wilderness years, TV movie or the books or something. And then you got the people who came in at some point in post RTD or Moffat land. So, um, it, it's interesting. That's, Sorry. Yeah. Go on. Those youngsters that are running around on my lawn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the youngsters running on. <laughs> yes. Who've made bow ties and fezes and pinstripe suits popular. Um, but, uh, so with that in mind, uh, are, do you do you have any affinity for doing any other characters from those eras, perhaps? Oh, from the classic era, or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, um, classic, particularly Pertwee through Davison. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah. I, I'd I'd really like to do some more Mary Tam costuming, um, except for the fact that I don't look great in white. But and indeed, I was kvetching about that, and that's when a friend of mine said, "Well." Uh, duh, Androids of Tara, mm. and I saw that one. Oh my god, I have to make that. Mm. <laughs> you know, that, that's a moral imperative. Um, I, of blood. I, yes, that's on my list. You, you took the words out of my mouth. I've got mm. Stones of Blood on the list, and Power of Crawl mm-hmm. uh, is definitely on the list as well. Um, and that one will be pretty simple to make because it's just a piece together, you know, suede top and, and a pair of stretch pants, really. Um, and, and, you know, my, my lament being that we need more short, uh, curvaceous brunettes characters uh on 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 the show uh new or, or let me find me some ones and old um I, I i'm not slender enough to pull off sarah jane smith i'm afraid but uh so, so doing some more mary tam is definitely on the list uh when i was younger I, I i can't swear to it but i'm pretty certain somebody did talk me when i was about 19 at a small creation con on the east coast talked me into uh a pair of you know cutoffs and a tied up madras shirt and, and a uh, perry you know uh. thing but mm-hmm. thank God, I think no photos have survived of that one. <laughs> uh, you know, that was more of a thing. But um, I'm actually, my, my interest right now is if, for classic costuming, I want to get into stuff that's more about construction. Like I've talked to you previously about the Robots of Death. You've done that great costume. Thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, it was one of the Vox. And I would really like to do a Vox as well, um, just because I, I love that story. Um, it is a great story. I, I love the story of Robots of Death, and you know, and there's a sort of associated spin-off called, um, well, associated. It's a spin-off called Caldor City, of which I'm uh, quite foolishly enamored as well. So, yeah, building a Vok robot would be an homage to both, and I'd really like to do that. But there's a lot of construction more than sewing in in that costume, and the same thing for doing the classic Time Lord High Gallifreyan, the High mm-hmm. Council robes, mm-hmm. um, with with the amazing headdress. Which you know, every now and then I, I look at a pile of Wonderflex and the heat gun, and I think, you know, I could do this. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, I could do this, but uh, it it does seem like a shortcut to insanity. <laughs> uh, it's, it's it's on my someday list. It's definitely stuff that involves things more like using fiberglass and resin casting and you know, real materials manipulation, mm. sculpting. You know, more more so than uh, sewing. Well, but this is a good chance to just expand the skill set, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. That's exactly it. Um, I, I wish I'd known when I was a youngster that, you know, h- how much I would need in the way of shop skills and fabrication skills uh, later on to be a customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have taken more shop classes when I was younger. I, I remember years ago, my husband goes, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, a bench grinder. And he goes, why do you need a bench grinder? It's like costuming. <laughs> and bless him, he, he took me at my word and I got a bench grinder for my birthday. 
um, you know, bench grinding and resin casting, which I've done to a small degree, and leather crafting. Yeah, you know, those are all skills that I picked up just because I wanted to make something for a costume. It is funny, actually, uh, getting into this hobby, like the stuff you learn that you never thought you would ever be interested in learning. Like, I, who, I'll tell you this, I never thought in a million years when I was, say, 18, I'd get excited about the fact of going to a fabric store. <laughs> yeah, it sounds more like penance when you were 18, right? Yes, yes. Never would have thought that ever, you know. And uh, not to say I didn't have some interest in costuming then, but not like now. Not where I'm going to go to that level. I mean, back then, if I wanted a costume, I'd, yeah, I'd bug my mom a bit or, you know, I'd buy it in a bag and try to modify it or something, you know. I wasn't too crazy about it yet. And, um, uh, but yeah, no, definitely. I'd, I I think I think about that or how much I'll I'll shop for clothes that I'm trying to find something close enough or that I can modify or going into vintage clothing stores. Uh, all of these are things that I didn't care to do <laughs> when I was a teenager. Well, no, no, because well, yeah, yeah, because you think it's silly because you're playing dress up and that's a thing kids do. Well, you know what? Kids have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Actually, it wasn't the dress up aspect. It's just that it's the take. How shall I put it? Um. I just never took clothing shopping seriously back then. You know, I got a few jeans and t-shirts and I was set back then. So now it's like, ooh. And I still spend far more time and effort and, and you know, blood, sweat, and tears on these than I do on my regular wardrobe, which is crazy. I really I really should be revisiting my day-to-day wardrobe a little bit, you know, with this kind of oh, passion. Oh, no, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, the passion's great and all, but people said to me, why don't you make your own street clothes? And I'm like, well, unfortunately, I can buy a pair of jeans at the Gap for $20, and Yes, I know it's because they're made in a sweatshop by some kid, but you know I, I'm not made of money, and I can't even buy the fabric for twenty dollars mm. to, to make to, you know, to make my jeans. Mm-hmm. So, um, or you know, if I, if I want, especially if I want to make something out of a nicer fabric like silk and you know leather and whatnot, uh, just the cost of materials alone will, will you know put me back the retail cost of the item. So, like I'm working right now on a custom dress shirt pattern from that bodice block that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but again, you know, I'm doing it not because I need a nice dress shirt for work or for job interviews, but because I'm playing a character in a, in a role-playing game and she would have some nicely tailored clothes in her wardrobe. So that's finally convinced me to start making some tailored outfits for myself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Um, but then again, I'm lucky enough to have a job where I can wear jeans and T-shirts on the job. So Always nice. You know. And well, and, you know, and I think that's why costuming is so enjoyable because uh, I, I do have the freedom to dress so casually every day that costuming and dressing up it's it's something special. True. No, you know? very true. And it's, and it's a way of it's it's a way of sort of indulging yourself um, that doesn't involve you know a potential. You know, I say it does empty the bank account just like uh, some other hobbies would, mm-hmm. um, but it's you've got something at the end of it. Uh, that's the way I see it. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, I must admit that there have been times when costuming has been really perilous to, to, to the bank account. <laughs> oh, really, really. Well, we, you know, um, you, you sent me a little list of questions of, of things to discuss, and you're mentioning sort of um, crazy things that one has done or overdone uh, uh, when when making a costume. 
And there have been times when I've, I've gone a little too far in the everything must be screen accurate. So mm. this, this original time agent concept that I mentioned, okay, fine, that, that was an original concept. But, of course, I was going to build a vortex manipulator for her to wear because that was going to be pretty much the only clue to a bystander that this was a time agent. Mm-hmm. And so um, and I, just by sheer coincidence, BBC had released uh, the concept drawings online. So I'm looking at the concept drawings. I'm looking at screen grabs. I've got a couple of pictures from Dr. Humag. Magazine, and uh, I've got my scale drawings done. I've had to make some adjustments because I've got tiny little wrists, and I'm looking at the snaps that go on the vortex manipulator. And long story short, after a round of emails, the very patient guy down in Los Angeles who's like in the snap business or something, uh, it became apparent that they were this very particular type of parallel spring snap, which are not the type you usually get in the stores. Mm -hmm. And long story short, uh, I was on the verge of spending about $150 to get the tool and the dies so I could get that specific type of snap to use on the vortex manipulator. (laughs) Uh, whereupon my husband, who was quite often the voice of reason uh, in these projects, goes, $150. Yeah, so you can have the right snaps on this prop you're wearing on your wrist. Mm -hmm. Now, who's going to see these snaps, honey? Other customers. When? When I do the documentation online. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Are you going to bring special attention to the fact that you use screen-accurate snaps? Um, I might. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. He's like, no, no, honey. <laughs> That's groceries for a week. I'm not letting you do this. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, and that was not the first time when I, 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 I forgot the 10-foot rule, which is usually my mantra. If, if it looks good from 10 feet, then, then don't sweat it. That's a good rule to have to keep the sanity. And uh, I was going to say that, uh, what's the saying uh, that, um, what is it, drugs and costuming, you know, one is uh, twice as addictive and just as expensive as the other, you know? And yeah, yeah, that was the title of, of the piece I did for Chicks Dig Time. There you go, yeah. there you go, yeah. Yeah, more productive than j- drugs, but just as expensive. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and which I can't take credit for, a friend of mine, uh, who I think had turned, she, she pinched it from somewhere as well, but it's so true. Um, but as my mother would say, uh, it kept me off the streets. <laughs> yeah. uh, and my husband knew where I was every night. I was in the sewing room shouting at something. Mm-hmm. Um, something. So, so, well, yeah, some costume aspect, you know, or whatever. Apparently, one, one day, uh, the, the Mormon missionaries were on the front doorstep, and my husband was gently trying to get them off the front door. And I was in the sewing room, which was immediately adjacent, and I had just discovered some colossal screw-up in something I've been working on very hard. And I said a very rude word so loudly that not only did the poor Mormon missionaries hear it, but they got off the doorstep very quickly. Nice. Um, so, yes. And I felt a little bad, but only a little. Only a little. Yeah, only a little. Um, so speaking of this 10-foot rule, um, yeah. I take it you you believe more in going for the look of a costume rather than going for uber screen accuracy? Yes. Well, particularly because when you're costuming, oh, yeah, like old school Doctor Who or, or you know, older media, absolute screen accuracy is probably impossible. I know you've organized things like doing custom fabric runs to, to replicate the, the fabric on the Eighth Doctor's waistcoat, sure. uh, of which I have a yard sitting in my, my stash, and it's fantastic looking. But that for me is very, you know, indulging something like that's an exception for me because after that snap incident, it really brought home the idea that yeah, I, I could write you know, the snap The snap incident. incident. There's yeah, a file. I, mm-hmm. Probably. And yeah, I, I could drive myself crazy going for screen accuracy. Um, and yeah, when I'm costuming, say, the, the, the big purple coat from Android to Tara, 
there is no off the shelf equivalent and and you know so and the hyper screen accuracy I can only go so far yes I will get as many screenshots as I can and scrutinize them and consult with friends and say yeah I think it's put together like this what do you think mm-hmm. and and quite often get get insight from the collective customer's brain trust mm-hmm. um but uh yeah I I think that the, the, the you know if if you pursue the hyper screen accuracy too far you end up miserable I mean I was miserable during the snap incident I, I was <laughs> I was miserable when I was trying to figure out this overlay on on the Rani costume and time in the Rani, um, you know. And, until a friend of mine said something in, in passing, that's like, oh, that's how I should do that. I'll take some black netting and overlay it on the red fabric. Mm-hmm. Duh, the sanity returned. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and, and then sometimes if I've got any grumble about costuming in in New Who, particularly with the the companions, is since. Um, it does use almost exclusively these off-the-rack items, you know, mm-hmm. from various shops in London. There's that huge secondary market that's developed on eBay and oh, elsewhere yeah. in, in selling, you know, the screen-accurate shirt for this episode. And you see the prices running up to ridiculous amounts. And mm-hmm. people can spend their money how they like. I understand that. And it's all market forces at work. Um, but, you know, I look at what somebody paid for, say, you know, the, the, the screen-accurate rose shirt in Love and Monsters or whatever. And I think, wow, I, I could have made the best part of a costume for the price of that one shirt. True. And, you know, and I find a lot of satisfaction in making. And, I, and you know, and people said, well, I can't sew. So I'm going to assemble a costume from board items. And I'm, well, of course, you know, you, you do what you enjoy. Uh, I, I just, you know, maybe I'm just being tight-fisted, but I, I really wince sometimes uh, at that secondary market. No, you, you've got to work within your means, absolutely. And if your means are very plentiful, then great. And some people get that huge kick about having that screen uh, ID brand name because it is almost like having... The, the thing on screen, which I get it's that. A connection. Yeah, it's a yeah, connection, it's a connection to the show and, and, and to the character, absolutely. I, mean, I, I think the only thing I really can't stand is, of course, the uh, people who go, um, your costume's wrong, or, you know, <laughs> no one's ever quite that blunt. But It, hop- it happens more online than in person. Well, of course it does, because yes. everyone's brave in cyberspace. Yes, indeed. Um, but could you imagine back in the day, I mean, it's it's hard to apply to certain uh, costumes like Tegan or something, but let's imagine you had the internet in the 70s, and you had people scouring for Joe Grant or Sarah Jane Smith's wardrobe saying, oh, you know, she got this blazer from here, and she got this sweater from here, and she got these camo pants from here. And I'm trying to think... Could the same thing have happened back then if you had... I mean, granted, I don't think as much stuff was sourced then as it is now. Not at all. And, and plus, the science fiction community was different then. Mm-hmm. With, with, with sci-fi geekdom going pretty much mainstream, it seems, at this point. Uh, I mean, for goodness sake, you know, ran around in a costume in, even in, in the mid-'80s. It was, you know, a raised, even in a convention. You, you were not, you know, in the majority. No. I mean, me and you have both seen how costumes just exploded at Gallifrey One oh, with yes. the advent and the new show, got these new fans coming in, especially those who are coming from an anime background with a really strong tradition of cosplay. Mm. And I think it's great. I love it. Yes. Um, but yes, I, I can't imagine if the internet existed in the 70s and trying to source that cute little vest that Sarah Jane wore or something. Um, but, you know, I bet it would have been cheaper, though, because they're like, oh, we got that at British home stores, yeah, the equivalent of Kmart. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. They didn't have the budget. You're absolutely right. They did not have the budget. And secondly, uh, back then, you're right, if you, even if you had the internet, it would have been a much smaller group, and they probably would have been, I don't know, maybe I, I, I see fandom differently back then, but it seems like people might have been more helpful back then to say, hey, you know, you can go get it here, and as opposed to the, that fierce competition that seems to happen with the secondary market on Rose and Amy and, you know, river items and such. Um, but then again, I don't know. I mean, it, it all comes back down to supply and demand, which is really yeah. what it boils down to. So Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That, that, that's what it is. It's in market forces at work. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, for good to know. <laughs> are there any other uh, costumes on your plate that you want to do that are not Doctor Who related? Um, yes. I'm, I'm just scouring my brain. I'm trying to remember. Um, uh, I, I often keep threatening uh, to do uh, some sort of 18th century French court gear because it's so gorgeous but i haven't got an, end, uh, an event to attend which should justify the enormous cost and effort that it would require to, to, to make that kind of gear and then contrary wise i also want to do uh, my personal salute to the chevalier Deon, who was um a well depending on who you speak to regarding so he's a transgender individual uh, in 18th century france who won the right to dress as a woman hmm. uh it, yeah it was an actually argument about what his real gender was uh, have never really satisfactorily been answered. But uh, he's historically a really interesting character. Mm-hmm. And and uh, but again, it's one of those I, I can't justify making a, you know, a, a noble 18th century rig uh, is by default not cheap because of the fabric and the sheer yardage used. So that's uh, that's on the someday list. And like I said, Vark robots on the someday list. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I catch myself looking at, at uh, Nissa's uh, trouser outfit with longing, but I, I think those years are, I think I'm a little past it at this point. I, I do sometimes threaten to, to want to do uh, Ace as she might appear now. Oh, okay, yeah, kind of a modern or new adventure kind of Ace. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I'd love to cosplay Bunny Summerfield, but that would be another one. Like, unless, you know, the, they have read, you know, got the books and seen the art with the comic, you know, no one's going to get it. Um, and I did kind of make myself a promise. I was going to do no more costumes that I had to explain to people, you know, and hand out an informational card with. <laughs> uh, I, I told myself no more of that. I haven't been terribly inspired by anything um, uh, in, in the new series for a while. Mm-hmm. I must, in fact, yeah, I think the last big inspiration really was Mercy Hartigan. But that's because so much of the companion costuming is just street clothes. Sure. And, um, and as I've mentioned before, the lack of petite, curvaceous brunettes uh, on the cast recently. You might get your wish, though, uh, when, you, yeah, get to a, when you get to Asylum of the Daleks. Uh, Jenna Louise oh, Coleman, she might, she might fit your bill a bit better than the others. That that is true. I am I am a little behind, as you know. So uh, that that hey, uh, I I live in hope. I, I live in hope. Absolutely. <laughs> it's funny too that your last inspiration was uh, was Mercy, since mine, in terms of new series costuming, would be still Jackson Lake in terms of a uh, the most up to date quote unquote costume to do. Um, well, I suppose that in the Eleventh Doctor, but I, I I put the Doctor separate in a way, you know. So. Yes, that's a whole other ball game for you. It's a whole other ball game. We won't go there, but yeah, it's it's definitely something I had my eye on occasionally, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, the day I solve the fabric issue, then we'll we'll start down that path. Um, of all the conventions that you've been to, what's your favorite to do costuming at? Well, that would obviously be Gallifrey one. Um, I mean, obviously. actually, having said that, I really uh, that there's a there's an event called Costume Con, uh, which moves across around the United States every year. So attendance is really erratic because it kind of has to be well in California for me to manage it. But the the, the regularly occurring, regularly attended uh, convention for me in costuming has got to be got to be Gallifrey one because of all the Doctor Who costuming mm-hmm. uh, that goes on. Now, now, what other conventions uh, have you attended in all of these various different outfits? Um, well, uh, fortunately, living uh, in San Francisco as I do, we have a couple of really good local science fiction fantasy events. We have um, BayCon, which is a science fiction fantasy lit con. Um, and until recently, there was Silicon, uh, which is a very similar thing on a smaller scale. 
And then we also have gaming conventions at which LARPs occur, and sometimes, uh, you know, sci-fi costuming can see dual use. Alex's Battlestar Galactica uniform saw more use at the local gaming convention um, than because he didn't really go to science fiction conventions, but he did run Battlestar Galactica LARPs, and we ran Firefly LARPs as well. Nice. So, oh, oh, it was great fun. Big damn LARP. As <laughs> it was known. Yes. Nice. And and so there was costuming for that which is really great for beginning customers because you could build outfits out of off-the-rack items. You, you didn't have to be a person, you, you didn't have to know how to sew to cast for Firefly, uh, which was a really great advantage. Uh, I called it sort of an entry-level science fiction cosplay thing. Um, and then uh, I, I try to make it out to Chicago TARDIS when I can, which is, you know, some people call it Gallifrey Light, which is, uh, uh, you know, not, not entirely accurate, but similar. Yes, they're, they're both Doctor Who and they're both, you know, fan run cons. And um gosh, what else is there at the moment? Um I made it to Worldcon last year, but that's not a regular thing. Mm-hmm. Of course the costuming at Worldcon is, is wonderful. And then there's Costume College, which is an event that happens every July down in Los Angeles, which as the name suggests, it's actually really about um it's it's a whole many, many tracks of programming, uh all being run with, with sort of costume education in mind. And there's usually a theme every year, but not all the programming is dedicated to, to a theme. The theme might be like the 1850s or the 1920s. And people do seminars on, you know, millinery or cost, corset construction or leatherworking or gentleman suits. And it's incredibly educational three days uh, down in Los Angeles. I think actually it's held, I, I don't know if it's still there. It used to be held at the Van Nuys Airtel Plaza where Gallifrey was back in the day, uh, coincidentally enough. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's a great event. Uh, it's it's small. I think it's about 300 people or so. Um, and, and tickets sell out in the blink of an eye hmm. uh, every year. Oh, you should check it out, Bob. I think you'd like it. Oh, apparently I need to, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought you also did WonderCon up in Frisco. Um, I, I did, but I haven't been for a couple of years. Well, um, this past year or so, it's it's been down in Los Angeles because the Moscone Center has been closed. Mm. Yeah. For uh for renovations and things. Uh once it comes back into town, uh I, I may well uh, wander the halls at that one again. Although WonderCon is kind of suffering Comic Con syndrome in that it is so crowded. It's very difficult to be a hall cosplayer uh, at either of those events because you know, if if you're wearing a costume, uh quite often you'll end up st- I would say stopping traffic, but you'll at least be affecting traffic. And the halls are so crowded that you want to wear something you don't want getting trodden on or bumped into too much. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think in a way, though, those those two comic-related events have become not not deliberately, but they're a bit costume unfriendly, just because hmm. the sheer. The, I think all the sheer crowd levels in the halls, and um, I, I understand that sometimes uh, anime conventions over in Japan will do a thing where there's a dedicated cosplay area, and you wear your costume there to show off and be photographed, but you don't walk the halls in costume like you do here in America. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but that, that's what I've heard the practice is, and maybe that's what's needed at the really super crowded events like, like WonderCon and Comic-Con, I don't know. Mm, yeah, to help the traffic issue so you don't hold things yeah. up. And yeah, I, I can understand that because, I mean, half the time when you're walking around, you feel like security is just always on you to like, keep moving, keep moving. And you're like, geez, what I, yeah, A few years ago, my, my friend and I, we, we did the Joker and Barbara Gordon out of The Killing Joke. Mm-hmm. And, well, that absolutely stopped traffic because we, we found a patch of floor and we were, you know, I, I was sprawled out on the floor and he was taking photos mm-hmm. and having quite quite good fun listening to people who'd stop look realize what we were doing go oh my god mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and move on but yeah security came along and pointed sticks eventually and, and, and told us to take it somewhere else pointed their security uh, sticks yeah 
Yes, yes, yes. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it's an unfortunate thing. Is you're going, you know, we are in costume. You want people to take your photo. When you stop to have a photo taken, you are by default blocking traffic. Mm-hmm. So a dedicated cosplay area, like like the little stage that San Diego sets up. Unfortunately, only what on the evening of the masquerade. Yeah, uh, that that would be you know, very helpful if they had that set up all weekend. That'd be great. Yeah, it would. But then again, it's just more things in the space to block traffic. Hey, yeah. Gallifrey's got the cosplay hall, which is awesome. That's true. That's true. And that, that just started life because we wanted a place just to take photos. And then it kind of grew into other stuff, which is great. So, yeah, kudos to Sean for letting us have it. Oh, it's awesome. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, speaking of which, if um, if you do make it out to Galley, you know, let me know if you want to be on another panel or have any suggestions because we're already kind of rejiggering and, and trying to expand the, the whole costume track this year. And, uh, oh, absolutely. Of mm-hmm. course. I think that's a given. Yeah, you drop me a line, mate. We'll work it out. Cool. Uh, you know, along similar line, uh, tell me about DW Cosplay. How did that start? Like a lot of online projects I've started, it uh, started because I had questions that I wanted to throw out to the community and, and, and see if I could find some help. But it was definitely simultaneous to with the new show coming online and um, this perceived desire. I, I think I met you just about the same time and uh, meeting up my friend Kevin and saying, you know, we, we want to see more costuming happen in, in, in Doctor Who fandom. Uh, and I was aware of, of Gallifrey Base. Uh, but I thought the traffic there was was a little haphazard, and uh, I was very active in live journal communities. I had I was running another costume community for corset makers uh, on live journal. It was very successful, and so I thought, um, let's find the, the the costumers who necessarily aren't necessarily on GB and create a space for them on live journal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just kind of started as I know there must be other folks out there uh, online who, who want to hang out and talk about. Doctor Who costuming. I, I think, you know, I don't know. I, I, you know, I can't think of one specific incident that, okay, that's it. I'm going to start the community. I think it's just a case of I wanted to create um, another focal point. Because, I mean, aside from the Velvet, the Velvet Web, whatever the heck it's called over on GB, that was really it for, for an online presence for Doctor Who customers at that time. And you know, yeah, I, I, at, that, at the time it probably was Outpost Gallifrey, actually. But so, yeah, yeah, it was Gallifrey Base OG. We all know what we mean. So, yeah, I think at that point, that was pretty much the only online gathering spot for uh, for Doctor Who cosplayers. Well, the Pridone Academy was originally a Yahoo group at that time. Oh, yes, yeah, I didn't know about them. Um, but he said I, I was very, very active in, in Live Journal, mm-hmm. and I still am. I'm one of the few who's left on Live Journal. <laughs> uh, I've got a permanent account, so I, I'm, I'm staying there until the Russian mafia close it down. But yeah, it, it was it was just a case of I I I, I, I hoped that there was uh, room for for another online community in a place, particularly for beginning customers, to uh, to, to share ideas. Um, because I'll probably get flamed to a crisp for saying this, but sometimes some users on Outpost Gallifrey were a tiny bit critical. <laughs> and, and some customers had come to me and said, I don't want to post over there. Mm. They're, 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 I'm, I'm feeling kind of intimidated. And, and so that was also in the back of my mind when, mm. when I played the DW cosplay, which, uh, oh, good Lord, I, I think it's at 3,000 members now. And not, not all active, of course, but right. it's, you know, I was really surprised. Uh, again, I think it was a case of being at the right place at the right time. As always. Yeah, yeah no, uh, definitely out of all of the uh, different online outlets for uh, Doctor Who cosplayers, it's uh, the one I tend to recommend the most because it's easy to just kind of lurk and jump right in. 
there seems to be a wider um, gamut of costuming going on there. And the most amount of um, community welcoming and support goes on there versus some of the other forums. And not that the other forums are, you know, uh, elitist and shut people out, but it's just, it seems to be the most, hey, everybody join in kind of vibe, you know. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I think that's probably a reflection of the typical uh, LJ user demographic as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, back on that post, Gallifrey, which has been there like since we were carving HTML on cuneiform tablets and calling it the World Wide Web, a <laughs> uh, lot, lot of you know long time sort of entrenched users. So yeah, maybe it was just a space yeah for, for, the, for the newbie cosplayers, for, for the new- newcomers, uh, yeah to, to to feel uh, a little less intimidated by the uh, by by the established uh, old guard. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I put it together and I just went into a couple other websites and started handing out business cards and plugging it at Gallifrey One. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and next thing I know, my God, here we are. I mean, it's been, I guess it's, it's been five and a half years now. Cause I, I think I started it right. As I said, right, right as Tenant was beginning his first season. So mm. yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's been great. I've been really, really pleased with how, um, how, how, yeah, as I said, the members are all really positive people. We very rarely have those outbreaks of internet drama that can happen. <laughs> that can happen. Uh, I know it's shocking, shocking. Um, we do not feed the drama llamas at DW Cosplay. And, uh, yeah, and, and you know, you're the comod, and we have Kim, who's a really awesome comod as well. There's a lot of work into it. Yeah, very and, true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm very pleased with it. Um, it's been a little hairy keeping it organized with that growth. People still seem to be finding what they want when they go there. That's a good thing. Yeah, no, the tag system is a lifesaver, and um, yeah. you know, uh, d- despite the pros and cons of it, I think ultimately moving uh, the bulk of the sales to the the sub sales community was a good move. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw how, how sales posts were becoming an increasing percentage of the traffic, mm-hmm. and I was like, this isn't what I come to a costuming community for, mm-hmm. and hey, I'm in charge, I can do this, I can move this over to another community. Right, you don't I'll complain, you do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, I, think it, I think it was a good move, yeah. Um, yeah, so for anyone interested, uh, I, I plug this a lot, but uh, please go and check out uh, this community at dwcosplay.com. Uh, that will lead you to wherever it is, if should it ever move away from LiveJournal, but right now that's where it is. And uh, I'll link that post as well um, in the entry when this uh, episode goes up so people can, can check it out. And yes, it's a great community. Uh, if you're into Doctor Who, uh, you really can't go wrong in terms of uh, you know finding awesome people and uh, getting tips on your costumes. Why, thank you. I'm, yes. I'm glad it's there. I mean, like I said... Uh... Much like the corset making community, I created it because initially I, I had questions I wanted to throw out into, <laughs> into the World Wide Web void and hope I get some answers, and I did. Well, it, it's nice that it hooks in so well to like what is it like uh, Who Daily and the the Who Knits and all those other uh, wonderful uh, kind of sub communities that kind of serve kind of the same umbrella. Shall we say? Yes, Crafty Tardis. Yes, I love visiting Crafty Tardis. That mm. place is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cannot knit to save my life. I've tried. I can't knit. I cannot crochet. I basically can't do anything that involves bits of string. And <laughs> uh, I'm ever in awe of of people who do. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I want to crochet Daleks so bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, how about a, how about a one-one scale crochet Dalek? That would be awesome. I've seen a one-to-one scale balloon Dalek. Mm-hmm. Oh was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. At that, that convention uh, in England, we were there. That thing, yeah. The, and the people celebrating their wedding had the, had the balloon Dalek. 
that was really quite quite scary yet adorable. Yes, yes, at the same time, yes, a balloon Dalek. And we needed that in Asylum of the Daleks because apparently they all should have been there. Where was the balloon Dalek? Where was the tiki Dalek? That's what I want to know. Oh, that's, that, that, where was the tiki Dalek? That is a very good point. We may have to get busy with Mr. Photoshop and, uh, <laughs> and make that happen. I, I think we'll have to email Kevin after we're done recording and nice. see what he can do. Nice, nice. <laughs> And that's where we lose the signal for this brand new episode of Costume Station Zero. I want to wish all of my listeners a happy belated new year. Happy 2013, the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Uh, We're going to be doing a little countdown to Gallifrey 1 coming up here in a short four to five weeks. Uh, I have a lot of Doctor Who cosplayers to discuss all the various facets of Doctors and Companions and all that kind of good stuff. If you have any questions or concerns or, I don't know, ideas or thoughts, just send them on over to www.costumestationzero.com and I'll be happy to answer them. In the meantime, stick around. We'll be here very, very soon with the next installment of Costume Station Zero. (laughs) 